Welcome to the new Innovation Matters podcast series of the United Nations Economic Commission for Europe. Innovation Matters aims to engage leading experts on a range of topics to explore how innovation could drive sustainable development in Eurasia and beyond. Our episodes explore ongoing trends, opportunities and challenges, such as the fourth industrial revolution, the sharing economy, the circular economy, autonomous vehicles and digitization. Welcome again to Innovation Matters. Today, we have a very special guest, Barbara Deal from Sprint, or the German Agency for Disruptive Innovation, a recent agency that was set up in the past couple of years. Barbara brings a background in innovation, education, and technology transfer, and is now responsible for science business partnerships in Sprint. Barbara, welcome to the podcast, and tell us a little bit about, about yourself and why you're so passionate about working for Sprint. Well, thank you very much. Hello, Anders. Hello, everyone. My name is Barbara, and it's a it's a true pleasure to to have been invited on the, on on this podcast. And um, yes, what uh, what brought me to Sprint was actually curiosity, in in the sense of that yes, my background is in in entrepreneurship and in innovation, and uh, and also to large degree in in education. So I've worked in a variety of roles at the interface between academia, research and other domains. And uh, and I always found it very fascinating about how actually research gets translated into application and into practice. And um, when the agency was set up, I, I got quite curious and I thought this is a prime opportunity to not only see a very new concept of innovation agency come into being, but also be there in the trenches and actually building it and, and seeing how we maybe find different approaches to the established mechanisms that already exist in, in transfer and innovation. Thank you, Barbara. And in fact, uh, two of the most important issues that you brought up will we'll get back to very soon. But first, just a preliminary question. What do we mean by disruptive or transformative innovation? Or some people also might call it radical or breakthrough innovation. Well, I do think that maybe maybe we need to step a little bit out before we come to the actual kernel of, of the question. But I, I do think that Ever since Clayton Christensen kind of endowed the world with a concept of, of disruptive innovation, it definitely has become a staple in the in the innovation discourse. I think there is uh, no doubt about that. I have a small grumble with it in the sense of that the term is or has been used in the past extremely and very inflationary when it comes to entrepreneurship and particular startup activity overall. I don't think you would see Pitch Deck today, be it, let's say, for a new breakfast cereal or, or a new, let's say, revolutionary propulsion technology that would not brand itself as, as disruptive. So I, I do think there is the, the term carries some baggage that I sometimes find counterproductive. Disruption, if you would go out onto the street and interview people, is not necessarily viewed as something positive. I think we, are, we do live in, in a bubble there to some extent. So let me give you an example. If, if I came to you and said, uh, Anders, I am going to fundamentally disrupt your life. I mean, how, how would you respond, right? We see it in the, in the current context. People's lives and, uh, and also to some degree livelihoods are currently disrupted by higher energy prices and rising costs of living, rising food prices, of which we haven't seen the end yet. 
And they do not respond very positively to that. So personally, I'm a little bit ambivalent about the term disruptive. It, it triggers sometimes a defensive attitude in many people because it somewhat suggests that you go to bed tonight and tomorrow the world is looking completely different. And I think we have to accept that most people are very skeptical about change. I mean, incremental changes are okay. But fundamentally questioning habits, lifestyles, future perspectives, development opportunities, etc., is is much more difficult. So I think coming back to Christensen is I think what he sort of elegantly worked around with his concept was the question of timescales. Fundamental disruptions can happen over expanded periods. So let's say 10, 15 or 20 years time, or sometimes even longer than that. Examples for that, I think we'll find in the scientific industrial revolutions. So I, I do think we have to be mindful of the fact that these terms carry baggage and carry meaning. So my preference would be to talk about breakthrough innovation, because I think it evokes more of a mental image of progress and achieving something that had not that has not been done before. And I think the idea when the agency was set up was probably somewhat self-serving. So it was driven forward very much upon personal initiative by the former Chancellor Angela Merkel. It was self-serving in the sense that within the German government, there's, I think, increasingly the realization that our socioeconomic wealth and well-being rests on the laurels of innovative discoveries and technologies that were made 70 and 100 years ago. And uh, and I think what, what we can say is that we are great at perfecting and incrementally improving things, but we definitely have missed the boat on on other areas, for example, battery development being one of them. And now we have to redouble our efforts to catch up. Yeah, I think for the purpose of this discussion, we can, we, we decided to name this in our new ECE uh, Transformative Innovation Network, Transformative Innovation, in an attempt to cover pretty much anything that's not incremental but that substantially changes the way we interact the way we the way we transact the way we do things but what i was wondering was more concretely there are of course many innovation agencies in germany or institutes with ancillary functions there's a lot of work for instance on what you call industry 4.0 in english it would be the fourth industrial revolution and also of course a lot of innovation in the economy already although as you would point out more of the incremental kind. What motivates the decision to set up Sprint in what to an outside observer might look like a relatively complex environment already, and especially what motivates the substantial autonomy that is inherent also in your in being set up as an LLC legal entity. Is there an expectation that something will be different? How would this contrast to other efforts to support innovation in, in Germany, very briefly from your perspective, what gap can you fill? Well, I, I do think that, um, yes, obviously launching a new innovation agency into a quite, I would say, already saturated field of innovation actors is quite challenging. And uh, and obviously one with, which comes sort of with a with the blessing of the highest order. Uh, and I do think that that was probably something that we were faced with very much in, in the initial setup phase, that um, we um, when, when we went around and tried to build the partnerships with established actors, we kind of always met this, why are you here? Why are you necessary? Why do, why do we need you? 
I do think that the the thinking behind the agency was very much oriented and very much informed. In fact, the concept for it was was developed by relevant um, innovation experts that obviously are looking worldwide for best practice examples. And they found ARPA or DARPA in the in the U.S. and said, like, look, okay, I mean, we know that. The D is is very much defense, um, but the whole model and how they work, the agility that they have, the autonomy of the innovation managers or say, say the program manager that they have is, is, is very much a part of that secret sauce, uh, as is, of course, the procurement power of the Department of Defense. But can we learn from that? I mean, can we, if we, if we kind of leave the D out and, and concentrate just on the agility and the the autonomy of of the structure can can we build something like that in germany and and i do think there was a lot of positive and and well-meaning intention i do think when the concept was then put into the i always call it a little bit flippantly the big political sausage making machine i mean they fed in a very ambitious concept in terms of agility and autonomy and what came out at the other end isn't quite as agile and isn't quite as flexible as the original proposal was. So in many ways, we are still working on untying these knots that were subsequently upon, let's say, drafting the concept were put in. So watch the space. We're working on it. We're working on a new legal framework that hopefully will then provide that that autonomy and flexibility that, that we would like to have. But, you know... The entrepreneurial spirit that very much pervades the the organization, and I do think that that is truly the difference in terms of the staff and and the people that work with it and in it is is the fact that they all very much identifying with the mission of of the agency to to really identify, develop, and finance these these innovative technologies with breakthrough potential that can actually really make the world a better place. So. So I do think it is an organization that is driven by this mission to serve society and um, to really contribute towards making the world a better place. Yeah, the political will and, and, and the mandate and, uh, of course, the energy that you and also, of course, that Raphael shows. I can only concur with that part. And uh, I can only say that in the work that we have been doing with agencies with similar ambitions to yours, could you explain what kind of um, innovation Germany and the EU more broadly needs and why we are not getting it? Why don't we see in some sectors the dynamism that we see in the US and in which sectors would you do you see that we could have not the same dynamism, but a similar kind of dynamism? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, I do think there are, you know, there are reasons for optimism and and pessimism in in equal measures so optimism in the sense that i do think we we i mean i I do think we all agree that we have all the necessary ingredients to to turn the corner be it let's say world-class minds clever people an increasingly more sophisticated funding landscape and also you know political will to throw behind the idea that sort of business as usual will will not be enough to prepare us for the challenges ahead. And I do think in in some ways that that's actually some positive thing that came out of the recent pandemic. I think it has forced us to do things differently at so many levels that we realize that humans do have this incredible capacity to change and adapt when when it's necessary. So I, I do hope that some of these processes we use to fast track developments, for example, in the area of a vaccine approval, for example, will will stay. 
bit the, the pessimistic side of me, however, also sports a certain feeling of exhausted relief and saying, oh God, thank God it's over. And now we can go back to the way before. And um, I do think our, our greatest challenge in, in adapting to, to change when it comes to very slow moving developments, like for example, climate change, we do not feel that there's a great enough sense of urgency. And I do think the fundamental insight that we've gained from the pandemic for me is that there is no innovation inside your comfort zone. Yeah. So if you're staying in your comfort zone, you will only be able to push things so far. But it's in the very nature of any kind of transformative change and development that it has to cause irritation in the system and, and mess with people's established ways of doing things. So only when you're forced out of your comfort zone, when you have to try something that you have never done before, um, you realize that change is stressful because of uh, unpredictable and uncertain nature to some degree. And I also see a fundamental constraint in in getting more innovation out and into the system that government regulations, and I think we touched upon that before, is are inherently based on on this kind of predictability and and also risk aversion. So what we see in the daily context in uh, of sprint when we're back in project is, you know, we spot something really promising, yet when it comes to putting some money behind it, we, we are always asked to somehow predict like how many pencils this project is going to need in year four, right? So this is this is obviously a bit of an exaggeration, but um, this is this is the logic and this is the way how this framework conditions for doing something differently inside a very highly regulated system goes. And if you're asking me the historical question, I mean, I do think what happened after World War II was the fact that we built these very separate worlds of, of academia and business. And we saw an academic establishment that in, in very many ways, either, you know, we forced um, the best minds uh, into, into emigration or they got killed. And in many ways, um, also the, the scientific and research establishment made itself somehow complicit in the very distorted ideologies of the Nazi regime. So when it came to like building a research environment after World War II, I mean, you really did not want any kind of government control in there, right? So, so basically research and science should govern itself and should be very free from, from the influence of policymakers. And I think that was fine as long as both spheres, let's say business and research somehow produced results and the economy was getting stronger and people were getting richer and well-being improved and wealth creation improved. But I do think where we are right now is that we have these two spheres that are somehow learned not to talk to each other in many ways. And um, and we are now facing these really deep and fundamental challenges ahead, like climate change, for example. And we are now scratching our heads and saying, okay, so how do we actually get that brilliant research that we are that we're funding with taxpayers' money towards actually developing solutions that that help us mitigate or or tackle those challenges that are ahead of us? I'm not sure that's a, you know it's it's probably just a partial answer to your question. But I do think there are on, on very many levels, it's cultural development, historical development, but also the fact that if people aren't necessarily forced to change, they are very reluctant to change. Thank you very much, uh, Barbara. I think uh, one point in particular I would like to, or two points in particular I'd like to pick up on. The first is the general lack of 
acceptance of failure. I lived in the US myself and it's a slight exaggeration, but nevertheless true that failure is a badge of honor. It's a way it's a way of learning. Whereas from what I know about Germany and to a lesser extent also in Sweden, if you fail in your occupation, you'll be seen as a failure in in, in your life in many cases. And that's that prevents a lot of the back and forth and exchange that might underpin the dynamism that we see in other countries. The other point leads me to my next question is uh, your story about the development of the relationship between academia and especially applied research and business after the war. Of course, everything was in flux. Uh, we were in a position where we had to either ignore the past or deliberately uh, distance ourselves from it, but of course at the same time maintain a sem semblance of institutions that could function and that uh, led to quite a bit of uh, confusion about what to do and the drive to build things anew. And as you said, the result of that was research community that was uh, more or less severed from the linkages that used to have the business community before. And that shows up in lower figures in terms of linkages between business and science in Germany compared to many other countries, but nevertheless much higher than what you see in transition countries following the post-Soviet transition. So I know you're very interested in this, and uh, I personally think this is one of the most important things to talk about. We work in transition countries, so always ask us to recommend to increase research funding. And I always tend to say, wait a minute, you're not getting anything out of what you're already spending. Let's find a way of demonstrating how that could be done, and then we can increase the research funding. And that frustrates people a little bit, but maybe you can tell us a little bit about why this is important and how this could be done in Germany and what roles could pay. I, I do think, I mean, one thing that, that struck me when I actually came back from, from the Anglosphere back into the, let's say, into the German system or also into like the more continental, because in in, in many ways, when, when I was in the UK, we weren't really encouraged to look at what's happening on the continent, right? We were more encouraged to kind of look at what's happening in India and China and the US and, and Canada, especially when it comes to things like entrepreneurship and, and innovations. But what, what struck me as, as being like one of those, you know, when it comes to innovation, I think you always have to look at what is the particular discourse about innovation in a certain context? And in Germany, I do think, and that may or may not be indicative or even hold true for transition countries, is that, that we talk about innovation always in extremely technical categories and almost exclusively in, in terms of sort of technical and economic value creation, right? So in, in this context, all the aspects or all the things like social or societal innovation or even innovation in administration or innovation in in the public sector or, or so they they for some reason they never they never feature in these discussions and i find and you may be able to concur with that is that i always found that in the anglo-american world the discussion is much broader so value creation is, is is defined much more openly for example value creation can be personal in a personal context with regard to personal development or even career development it can be framed in terms of societal or social benefit, for example, value creation in in the community or even in the cultural environment, yeah. And of course, of course, you can always roll back to the sort of the economic and the financial value creation. But I think you always have to kind of unpick like what do what's in people's heads when they 
when they use terms like that. And uh, one thing that I always did when I facilitated workshops on the topic was that I tried to play these kind of association games, right? So, so you have a group of people and you say, okay, write the first three things that come into your head when you hear the term innovation onto a piece of paper and then kind of compare. And you get a pretty good insight into what people associate with a particular term when, when you do that. Uh, and I think you have to work with that and from that when, when you're trying to design an innovation strategy. Why do we have this kind of technical economic interpretation, so to speak, in, in Germany? I do think to some extent it comes with the type of expertise that we usually put together when it comes to questions on designing innovation policies. And in my view, this is mostly engineers and economists. So when you look at who sits on innovation advisory boards in the public field, who is advising governments and who sits on government commissions, they are very likely and to a very high degree and percentage, either people with an engineering background or people with a background in business administration or economics. And I do think this has an impact on how the discussion is conducted and through which prism and lens one, one looks at, at the innovation process. Thank you, Barbara. There was a lot to chew on there. And I think it's one thing that's definitely clear is that we here in Europe, we have, we have our own legacy and we have to find our own solutions to this. Even from a pure efficiency perspective, America is, of course, far from optimal. In fact, they spend more on welfare per capita than people do in Sweden. And people think of Sweden as a welfare state. It's just not spent the same way that it is doing in Sweden. And Sweden has a very liberal economic system in almost every other respect. So we have to look at something that kind of comes from our history and that is natural to us also in terms of specialization and the dynamic that, that can come up. But we have seen dynamics in some areas such as biotechnology in France and others. The question is how do we gain that up? And I think you're definitely right. Uh, and we see this much more pronounced in our transition countries that there is some more of an ossification and a more of a resistance, not only to risk, but to interdisciplinarity. Most academic writing, and there's a large genre of American academic writing that's written for an educated but not specialist audience. Interdisciplinarity is taken as a given. Liberal arts education forces you to take all kinds of classes from different traditions. So it's, it's a little bit much more integrated in, in the system. I'm, for instance, I never studied economics, but if I say something that makes sense, an American economist would not question me because I lack the credentials that he, that he does have. I think the chance of that happening is much higher in Europe. But it's also, I think, I think it's also the idea of like whether you give people the agency, a sense of agency in the education system that they are actually kind of masters of their own destiny in many ways, right? So that they can actually shape the future. And I do think we do, we don't do enough of that in, in, in school and in the education system as such. So the sense of that you you foster that kind of I can be whatever I want to be rather than you're following a certain prescribed path and I always found it very heart-wrenching when I was teaching undergrads in in Dublin and I saw these 17 year old 18 year old kids being completely stressed out they, they were so stressed by the fact that I oh I have to make the right choice right and then you think 
well, what is the right choice, right? There aren't, so to speak, good and bad choices in the sense of they're just choices, right? And there are very few choices that you cannot undo, <laughs> even if you experiment with a certain choice for a period of time. So th so this, this sense of agency, this sense of I can be whatever I want to be, I think that's, that's something that definitely needs to be injected more of into the education system because career paths look very different. Labor markets will look very different. Skill sets and competencies and qualifications will, will change fundamentally in the future. And, and I do think at the moment our education system isn't geared up towards preparing people for that. Yes, definitely. I think that's one of the areas where the U.S. Is, is ahead of us. You can take several years to decide whether you want to become a doctor or a lawyer. You, you can become a lawyer at the age of 50 if, if you want to. You can become a university professor. As long as you prove your mettle, you do have a lot of opportunities. And this is also part of my personal story of jumping from different, from different academic areas that I loved and was fascinated by, but get bored of after a while. And no but I mean, I was I was still I was still convinced that, you know, the first job that I got was basically that I would stay in this job and I would stay with this organization for the next 35 years. I mean, because that was sort of the model that you saw that you saw growing up. Right. People people were staying with the same organizations, with the same employers for a very, very long time. And um And so the fact that that you have much more, let's say, different kind of career development models these days that people are not staying with the organizations as long as they used to be that they are kind of hopping in between and so on and so forth i think that's um definitely also difficult for organizations to say okay what can we offer our employees and and how can we actually retain good staff and good people yes but of course at the same time you know labor market flexibility and people changing jobs so highly correlated with the sort of dynamism that you see in Boston. And then, so you have to have something to do with each other and it has to be important in the future that's going to be even more uncertain. But this leads me to just a final question I want to put I want to I want to put to you. We know already that innovation is is unpredictable. In fact we can be more sure that whatever we predict is not going to happen that it's going to happen at least if you look at the historical record and this is right even in the short term at the same time we understand the role for some targeted support for innovation it's been relatively well established since arrow and others and motivated in several different ways so the fact that you don't know what innovation is going to work and what's going to come in the future what the opportunities and threats are going to be and the logic of government in general and public support in particular and the aim to be to be catalytic and to capture opportunities that you probably would not be able to predict in the forecast or sector sector planning or emission planning exercise this challenge is at the core of what you're trying to do at sprint and i wish you all the best for it and i hope that other network members can help you with it and we shouldn't expect any perfect solutions but I would just like as a final word to hear from you two or three things that you found to your surprise either worked well or didn't work well or didn't work well at all and what you learned from it. 
Are you referring to Sprint in, in the Sprint context? Yeah. Because then I would yeah. basically ask you to wait for another three years until at least we have five years under our belt because we're just in, in year two. So, so any kind of conclusive... Just thinking me more abstract thoughts or things that you have seen or things that you've experienced in previous functions. The yeah. problem is how do you support what you don't know from a public sector perspective? How do you solve all of the inherent contradictions in there? Just if you have a few examples. Well, I mean, I, I do think that I do learn the most about, let's say, the personal dimension of innovation in the sense of how open are you as a person yourself, right, to change? Like, how how do you respond to change? Because, I mean, you can talk about innovation in extremely abstract terms. But I do think it ultimately it boils down to about how experimental are you yourself and as a person in your daily life? Like how often do you take a different path to work? How often do you try out different foods? How often do you change jobs, for example? And and I do think you can learn to become more open about that but it needs a community and i think what we were always trying to um fire in in the students um that we were teaching and when it came to let's sort of the topic for example of entrepreneurial thinking especially in the academic context it's uh I, I always found it uh, personally quite funny when at the beginning of such an event you know you you ask kind of participants what they expect and often very often you hear oh are we going to learn how to write a business plan And and then um, I usually try to throw it back to, at them and say, well, have you already written a grant application for a research project? And most of them not. And then you say, well, then you already know 85% of how to write a business plan. And that's kind of always getting astonished reactions because you stand by and uh, you sort of don't connect the two, right? So So you always think that one is completely separate from the other. And I'm very, very grateful that, um, especially in the German context, there there is a there's a recent study on the kind of the psychological dyna- dimension of of the startup process and um, and what it actually means. And it was actually really much looking at the sort of the cultural and the and the and the psychological dimension of of that, not only about you know the the sort of the business administration side of things. And um, And what they found is that what you need in order to change mindsets and in order to make people more open towards change, you you need to create these environments where you provide kind of low threshold offerings of, of trying things out. It's very essential that you develop these kind of learning communities where you feel that you're not alone, right? You have to offer these kind of playful approaches to learn how to deal with entrepreneurial challenges. And I think it's also important to always highlight the kind of competences and skills that uh, you you can take away from, from such learning formats, which is things like working in teams, iterative approaches to problem solving, this whole idea of stepping out of your comfort zone, working in a kind of implementation-oriented way, thinking of problem solution, the importance of actually building networks and partnerships, And also the, the the importance of communicating and of presentation skills. So I think that for me, that has been the most, um, one of probably the most significant and fundamental learnings when it comes to what it is that you, that you need to work on yourself, you as a person, and you can train that and that innovation isn't some sort of abstract thing that's happening out there and somehow delivers gadgets, 
once in a while, right? But that it actually starts with you as a person. Barbara, do you have many thanks for being on Innovation Matters? Thank you very much. Thank you.